Birthday time here on IRIS on November 14th. We have one birthday to celebrate, Leola Dot Barons of Des Moines. So, Leola, very happy birthday to you and a beautiful Iowa fall day to celebrate your birthday, and we certainly hope you do. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. Now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Thank you, Pat. Roger Tweet of Polk City, age 87, passed away from a stroke on November 10th. A visitation will be held from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Wednesday, the 15th, at Memorial Services of Iowa, which is 4208 North Ankeny Boulevard. A funeral will be at 11 o'clock in the morning, Thursday, November 16th, at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Ankeny. Roger and his brother Steve have owned and operated Tweet Trucking together since 1990, hauling grain, seed, and livestock. They also farmed together for many years. Roger is survived by his wife of 65 years, Mary Ellen Tweet, his children, Kristen Evanson, married to Jeff Roselle, Carrie, married to Mark Dickin, and Craig, married to Cindy Tweet. Seven grandchildren, four great-grandchildren, brothers Wayne and Steve, and many extended relatives and friends. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the family where they will be directed to causes dear to Roger. Online at ankadememorial.com. Donella Crowell Lint of Johnston was born January 14, 1934, in Shannon City, Iowa, the daughter of Francis Roy and Nina Sloan Crowell. She grew up near Des Moines and Johnston. Donella was united in marriage to Martin, uh, known as Marty Lint. Donella enjoyed bowling, playing cards, and putting puzzles together. She was a member of the VFW Ladies Auxiliary, number 9662, and Des Moines Women's Bowling Association. Donella died November 12th at Urbandale Health Center. She was 89. Donella is survived by her sisters, Joy Cummings, Ramona Ward, and Dorothy Brooks, in addition to sisters-in-law, nieces, and nephews. She was preceded in death by her parents, her husband, and her brothers, Nathan, Jean, Ron, John, and Donald. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday, November 15th, at Isles Westover Chapel. Graveside services will be at 11 o'clock in the morning on Thursday. Memorial contributions are suggested to Grandview Lutheran Church, where she was a member. Paul E. Maple of Johnston was born on November 25, 1951, to Paul T. and Doris L. Maple. He left us on November 5th. Paul was a lifelong concert contractor. He loved baseball, NASCAR, Bud Light, and playing air guitar for his favorite people. He never knew a stranger and always had a story to tell. He leaves behind his bride of 37 years, Wendy, his children, Simon, married to Tanya Ryan, married to Tanya, Ryan, married to Amanda, Nathan, married to Natalie, Samantha, married to John, and two grandchildren, Carly and Lincoln. We will be celebrating Paul on his 72nd birthday, November 25th, 
at Doc's Lounge from 3 to 6 p.m. Larry Pardovsky of Johnston, age 82, passed away peacefully on November 8th, following a lengthy battle with MDS with his wife, Charlene, um, nicknamed Char, by his side. Services for Larry will be held on Friday, November 17th at uh, 12.30 p.m. at Merle Hay Chapel um, at 4400 Merle Hay Road. Visitation and reception will immediately follow from 1.30 to 3.30. Larry will be missed by his wife, Charlene, children, Mike, married to Amy, Sarah, married to Paul Ripma, grandchildren, Kenna Atchison, Joe Pardovsky, Dane, Sloan, Bo, and Trip Ripma, his brother, Don Pardovsky, and a host of family, friends, and family members and friends. In lieu of flowers, contributions to Larry's memorial may be directed to the family. More information may be found at MerleHayFuneralHome.com. Pat. Thank you, Dan. And two more obituaries. Janet Jan Brinkman of Nevada, uh, age 90, passed away peacefully on Friday, November 10th, 2023, with her daughters at her side. She was born at the Iowa Adventist Sanitarium in Nevada on March 21, 1933, to Glenn and Mona Newton of Nevada. She graduated from Nevada High School in 1951 and attended Colorado College from 1951 to 1953. After leaving college, Jan worked at Gates Rubber Company in Denver, Jewett Lumber Company in Des Moines, and Glenn R. Newton Lumber Company in Nevada, Fun fact about Jan, she applied to be a stewardess with Pan Am Airlines, but was told she was not a good fit because she was too shy. Jan was united in marriage to Harold Brinkman on February 8, 1958. To this union, three children were born, John Newton, who died in 1964, Kimberly Sue, and Susan Kay. She was a member of the following organizations, PEO, uh, Nevada Questers, Nevada Historical Society, First United Methodist Women, Delta Gamma Sorority, and numerous bridge clubs. Throughout her life, Jan was a caring and compassionate humanitarian. She was involved in various Nevada service organizations, including Meals on Wheels, First United Methodist Church, and 4-H. You could always see her smiling face at the church stand every summer during the county fair. She enjoyed going to Nevada long-term care to visit residents and provide them with happiness and joy. She was deeply passionate about travel, golf, gardening, family, and lifelong friends. She was survived by daughters Kimberly from Bethesda, Maryland, and Susan, married to Barry Chapla from Arveda, uh, Colorado, grandchildren Maya Sue Caceres, Braden John, and Justin, married to Alex Chapla, and great-granddaughter Charlie Joe, as well as many cousins, nieces, and nephews. Jan was preceded in death by her husband, Harold Brinkman, on May 7, 2023. Her parents, Glenn and Mona Newton, son John Newton Brinkman, brothers Paul Newton and Robert Newton, and sister-in-law Nancy Newton. Kim and Susan are eternally grateful for the love and care their parents received from staff at Windsor Manor, along with St. Croix Hospice. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, November 16th at Rasmussen Ryan Funeral Home, and that's located at 1418 Fawcett Parkway in Nevada. 
Funeral services will be at 1 p.m. on Friday, November 17th at the Nevada First United Methodist Church located at 103 6th Street in Nevada. Interment will be at the Nevada Municipal Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the Nevada Historical Society, Story County Medical Center, or the First United Methodist Church. Rasmus and Ryan Funeral Home in Nevada is handling the arrangements and condolences may be sent to the family at the funeral home's website, rasmussenfh.com. And Nancy Lupman McClevan, age 78, died at her home in Mill Valley, California on November 9th, 2023, after a long and courageous journey with cancer. Nancy will be remembered fondly for her love of family, passion for the preservation of the environment, and the protection of women's rights, a long career of helping children and many other contributions to her communities. Born in Atlanta, Georgia, the daughter of Lewis and Marjorie Lepman, Nancy grew up in Glencoe, Illinois, lived and worked in Des Moines, and moved to Mill Valley 10 years ago. She was a graduate of New Trier High School, attended Centenary College for Women in New Jersey, and received her BS degree from Drake University. She then pursued her interest in helping others by obtaining her Master of Social Work from the University of Iowa in 1985. Nancy's career in helping children began while volunteering at Head Start in Washington, D.C. In her professional life, she provided mental health treatment for adolescents at Orchard Place, which is a residential treatment facility in Des Moines for over 25 years, retiring when she moved to Mill Valley in 2013. She adored her work there, the children she treated, and the staff, she made a difference in the lives of many children through her work. Nancy was an exceptional uh, gardener with a wonderful eye and touch, artistic both in the garden and with her indoor arrangements. She brought those talents to her membership in two Garden Club of America organizations, the Des Moines Founders Garden Club, where she was a member for 30 years, serving as president and chairing many committees, and the Marin Garden Club of California, where she was also very active uh, serving on and leading many, many committees during her eight-year membership. In addition to her gardening skills, Nancy was a passionate and persuasive activist on behalf of our dear Mother Earth. She was chair of CGA's National Affairs and Legislation Committee, tasked with articulating CGCA's uh, conservation environmental message to Capitol Hill and raising awareness of those issues around CG. CA members. She frequently met with U.S. Senators, members of Congress, and their staffs regarding GCA's positions. In recognition of her efforts, she received the Medal of Merit from the Marin Garden Club and the Zone Conservation Award from GCA. She is survived by her husband, Tom, her children, Betsy Madden, who's married to Steve, and John McClevin, and her grandchildren, Elizabeth Madden and Nicolette McClevin, a gathering in Nancy's memory will be held at a later date. Contributions to Nancy's memory may be made to Orchard Place. That's uh, located at 2116 Grand Avenue in Des Moines or online at the Orchard Place website. Our Garden Club of America, Blackburn Fund, Attention Allison Dolak. That's at 14 East 60th Street in New York. And that's it for our obituaries. And now here's Deanna with our next story. Thank you, Pat. I'm going to go to money section. Cruising 
altitude. This is welcome aboard NASA's flight to a greener future. The effort aims to cut aviation industry's climate impact. This is from Zach Wichter. In the skies over Montana, well, that was a first for me. I'd never had to sign a waiver to catch a flight before. I recently joined a mission on NASA's DC-8 Flying Laboratory out of the Armstrong Flight Research Center, and in a few words, it was part avgeek heaven and part science utopia. It's clear to see the aviation industry is working to address its environmental impact. The purpose of the flight was to test the emissions and contra contrail uh, formation properties from a new Boeing 737 MAX 10, which is eventually destined for United's fleet. Contrails are those little white streamer-like clouds that you see sometimes trailing behind airplanes as they streak across the sky. It turns out contrails might actually have more of an aggregate climate impact than the flight's CO2 emissions. Although contrails typically dissipate after just a few hours, they can trap heat before they do, and are much more effective at doing so than atmospheric carbon dioxide. Everyone knows that flying isn't great for the environment, getting a jet plane off the ground and shooting it across the sky at hundreds of miles an hour in, with highly fossil fuel intensive. What was illuminating about the research flight was seeing how many resources the industry and other state stakeholders are dedicating to doing what they do better. We know that aviation contributes to global warming and climate change, said United Airlines Chief Sustainability Officer Lauren Riley. My concern is that we're not seeing enough development of sustainable aviation fuel in the timeline we need it. So what was the DC-8 flight like? Before takeoff, I was briefed that it would be unlike a regular commercial flight. I had to get a medical clearance from NASA, attend a safety briefing, that included information about how to don a smoke hood. I was warned repeatedly that I was much more likely to get airsick than I am in the normal course of traveling. Reader, here I am to say the flight was a lot more normal than I was led to believe. NASA's DC-8 first entered commercial service in 1969 and has been with the agency since 1985. In its almost 55 years in the sky, it has flown countless research missions and is actually set to retire next year. It will eventually be replaced with a Boeing 777. The cabin was stuffed with high-tech research equipment to monitor particles, ice crystals, and other stuff in the air as we followed in the wake of the Boeing 737 MAX. Tracy Phelps and Andy Barry piloted the NASA jet along with their flight engineer Brian Illit and largely flew by hand for the nearly six hours of the mission. Keeping the DC-8 in the narrow band of the Boeing's path required skillful airmanship. Even a few feet meant the difference between usable and unusable air samples for the purpose of the research, and there was almost constant communication between the pilots and the mission director to make sure the scientists were getting what they needed. Phelps said after the flight, to tout the DC-8 for just a minute, this is a very unique capability that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, that we can put this many instruments on this airplane and we can go out and sample all of these things simultaneously in the wake of another large aircraft. He said, from my perspective as a research pilot, it's amazing to be able to do all those things at the same time. 
So what research was conducted? On board, the atmosphere was friendly but focused. As someone who flies a lot, it was really encouraging to see so much brain power dedicated to moving the needle toward solutions to the climate impacts of flying. We want to be able to sample the emissions from the aircraft ahead of us in order to understand, at cruise conditions, what are the particles and gases coming out of the engines. We want to understand the effect of those particles on the contrails under a variety of different environmental conditions, said Rich Moore, principal investigator from NASA Langley. He told me this after the flight. We're getting the data that, that the modelers need to assess what the impacts of these technology and fuel improvements will be on the fleet over the next 10 to 15 and 20 years. Barry, the NASA pilot, suggested the research could lead to changes in the way flight routes are planned. So what does it mean for travelers? It's hard to say exactly what the immediate practical results of this research will be. The analysis still has to happen, and it takes time for an industry that keeps its assets, in this case planes, around for decades to respond to new climate data. However, there are a few likely contenders for how it will be used. First, stakeholders on the research flight told me that the data will help inform the next generation of airframes and engines. What the scientists found in October will eventually contribute to more eco-friendly flying. More immediately, Riley from United told me the data could help bolster the business case for increasing sustainable aviation fuel production. He said, United intends to take all this knowledge and package it to support the pr production of SAF. She said what the average flyer needs to know is that the industry is committed to doing the right thing. Pat? Thank you, Dan. And before we uh, move on to other stories, I want to correct. I had mispronounced the name of one of the uh, women who died in the obituaries. It should have been Nancy McElveen, and I mispronounced it. I'm sorry for doing that. We'll now move to the 50-state uh, report, and the highlighted state here is Texas, and it's Austin is the dateline. Lady Bird Johnson's own voice is offering new looks at the former first lady in several recent projects, including a documentary entitled The Lady Bird Diaries, and that's on Hulu, a University of Texas podcast and exhibit at the Presidential Library for her husband. Johnson began recording an audio diary in the tumultuous days after her husband, Lyndon B. Johnson, became president following the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963. The library re released that audio about a decade after her 2007 death. It adds to recorded interviews she did after her husband's presidency in home movies that she narrated. Alabama Getson, the city is going after big money to help develop the Joseph T. Robinson Park at what is now an empty lot. The city council authorized the application for and acceptance of, should it be successful, a land and water conservation fund grant through the State Department of Economic and Community Affairs. From Anchorage, with the state's Bering Sea snow crab fishery closed due to low population numbers, crabbers are facing their industry's uncertain future and looking for creative ways to support themselves, including selling directly to customers at pop-up sales. From Phoenix, airlines are stepping up to meet increased demand in the city with Canadian ultra-low-cost carriers Lynx Air and Flair Airlines recently introducing new Canadian routes and American Airlines planning to launch services to Tijuana in February 2024. From Whitehall, Arkansas, the state's modern gun deer 
hunting season opened this weekend and is poised to rake in revenue for the state and local communities, with Arkansas Game and Fish estimating that hunting generates $3 billion annually. From Palm Springs in California, the city will likely go a year and potentially much longer without seeing new cannabis dispensaries open after city council voted this week to extend a moratorium on new dispensary permits for 10 and a half more months. From Pueblo in Colorado, the water district there has begun reconstruction of the South Side Diversion Dam and Raw Water Intake Facility near the city park to build its Waterworks Park project. The rehabilitation project aims to improve safety on that part of the Arkansas River and create a passageway to allow people to ride the river unimpeded. In Hartford, Connecticut, new projections from Governor Ned Lamont's budget office and legislative analysts are expected to show that the state's budget remains in balance. But the massive surpluses are done. The challenge for Lamont and lawmakers now will be to find perspective. Wilmington, Delaware, the city is making $2 million available to help homeowners make repairs and to assist residents in the down payment of a home. Residents who are eligible can receive up to $15,000 to help them purchase a home or $10,000 for repairs to homes for existing owners. From our nation's capital, residents and visitors will face road closures and restricted parking in the downtown area and around the National Mall Tuesday as a march for Israel is expected to draw as many as 60,000 people to show their support amid the ongoing Israel-Hamas war. In Tallahassee, Florida, a controversial zoning change will go before city commissioners next month after members of the Planning Commission approved the property owner's request for a land use amendment. Impacted residents came out in droves for the Planning Commission meeting in hopes of convincing the commission to reject the amendment. From Savannah, Georgia, fueled by the state's expanding ports, an explosion in large-scale warehouses is putting water quality in communities at risk along the coast. That comes from a coalition of environmental organizations. In Honolulu, state officials are making Hawaii Apprenticeship Week, or marking, I should say, marking Hawaii Apprenticeship Week by highlighting programs that train workers to help address the state's labor shortage and put residents on high-paying career paths. From Nampa, Idaho, the College of Western Idaho has announced it will expand its advanced megatronics engineering and technology program with help from a new grant. Boise State Public Radio reported the program will train technicians for Micron Technologies' planned manufacturing plant. And from Illinois, Springfield, the state received another credit upgrade the same day a legislative committee once again scrutinized Governor J.B. Pritzker's administration for its handling of unemployment claims during the COVID-19 pandemic. Deanna. Thank you, Pat. All right, Indianapolis, Indiana. The 2023 municipal election is barely over, but the 2024 election is already well underway. For the governor's race, it's no ordinary campaign season. Now that the 2024 race can heat up, voters are likely going to a field to field a bombardment of ads and messaging like they've never seen before. Out of Des Moines, Iowa, corn yields in Iowa are projected to average about 200 bushels per acre. And overall, corn production in the U.S. this year might set a record, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Out of Topeka, Kansas, state lawmakers spent a day 
hearing opinions on homelessness, but it is unclear what the legislature might do to actually address it. The Special Committee on Homelessness held its one and only meeting and did not make any formal recommendations. Out of Louisville, Kentucky, cheers and whoops rang through the city's Metro Council chambers when the vote tally for the anti-displacement ordinance was revealed to the audience. Every council member present voted to approve the ordinance, which aims to combat gentrification in the city. Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Governor John Bell Edwards announced the adoption of paid parental leave for nearly 70,000 state employees. State employees are entitled to a parental leave benefit of six weeks at 100% pay within 12 weeks of a birth, adoption, or foster care to promote bonding with a new child, according to the new policy. Out of York, Maine, pretty soon a new tail will be wagging around the halls of the York Police Department. Major, who is an eight-week-old English Labrador retriever, is undergoing training to be the department's new comfort dog to help ease the stress of trauma victims and officers. From Salisbury, Maryland, with his lead holding and growing through the first round of mail-in ballot counting, Randy Taylor is already preparing for his term as the next mayor. The slim 65 votes that separated him and Megan Outen was enough to set his mind to fulfilling campaign promises like prioritizing fiscal responsibility. Out of Barnstable, Massachusetts, Barnstable County commissioners sent a letter to a delegation of U.S. lawmakers urging them to oppose more federal funding for a proposed machine gun practice range on Joint Base Cap Cape Cod. From Lansing, Michigan, families will have to keep paying out of pocket for mental health and substance use care for their children after state lawmakers adjourned without a vote on mental health parity bill. The bill will be back on the table when the legislature reconvenes, and advocates say a vote on HB 4707 cannot come too soon. Out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, Progressive's U.S. Representative Ilan Omar has drawn a prominent Democratic primary challenger. Former City Council member Don Samuels announced that he will try once again to unseat her after coming close in 2022. Out of Madison, Mississippi, after 20 years of bringing Christmas joy to passers-by, the popular Richardson Light Show has come to an end. Or has it? There will be no light show this year, and probably not in the near future, said Carl Richardson. Columbia, Missouri. Changing schools will be part of some students' lives with a new round of school attendance area changes. The move is precipitated by additions uh, at two elementary schools and a new elementary school over the next three school years. Out of Great Falls, Montana, Kalispell and Great Falls saw administrative errors in their municipal elections, and more than 100 voters were turned away at the Cascade County Expo Park in Great Falls, according to a watchdog group and public information officer. Out of Omaha, Nebraska, a business district has become a source of contention for nonprofits that after nonprofits and local governments sought funds to improve it, the Nebraska Examiner reported. 
A group has opposed the plans and called for a parking structure to be built instead, according to the news outlet. And one more, Carson City, Nevada. Republican Governor Joe Lombardo set a single-session record for vetoes in 2023, killing 75 bills from a legislature dominated by Democrats. Lombardo does not want to do that again, so he said he's doing what he can to elect more Republicans. Pat, back to you. All right. Thank you, Deanna. For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Deanna Snyder and Pat Steele. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now we will take a short break to allow our next readers, Dale and Doug, to get into place. Welcome back. Your new readers are myself, Dale Finnegan, and my partner, Doug Kretzinger. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. And now here's Doug with our next article. USA Opinion Page. Here's one. UN is letting Hamas get away with murder. Lack of real response recalls 2014 terror attack. Written by Aviva Klompas. 
and she is the former director of speech writing at the Israeli Mission to the United Nations and co-founder of Boundless Israel, a nonprofit organization that partners with community leaders in the United States to support Israel, education, and combat hatred of Jews. There is an eerie familiarity to how the world is reacting to the war between Israel and Hamas. In 2014, I was a speechwriter for the Israeli delegation to the United Nations when Hamas terrorists kidnapped and killed three Israeli teenagers, kicking off 50 days of war. For the past month, I have felt an unsettling sense of deja vu as I've watched the UN go through the same tepid motions in response to today's war. The modus operandi of such terrorist groups as Hamas, Hamas long has been to prey on the weak and defenseless. On June 12, 2014, Palestinian terrorists abducted Eli Yifrash, 19, Jalad Shar, 16, and Naftali Frankel, 16, on their way home from school. Israel launched a military operation in the West Bank to locate the boys and found their bodies 18 days later, buried in a shallow grave north of Hebron. The ensuing war saw an Israeli ground offensive into Gaza. The goal was to stop Hamas's unceasing rocket fire into Israeli towns and destroy its underground tunnel network. Then, as now, the response from the United Nations and the international community made clear that Hamas would never be held accountable for its actions. Shortly after the three boys were abducted, our delegation called on the UN to denounce the kidnapping. A UN spokesperson replied that there was no, quote, concrete evidence, end quote, the boys were kidnapped by terrorists. Where's condemnation of Hamas? UN agencies then embraced the both sides approach. UNICEF, which exits exists to protect children, posted online, quote, recent violent events affecting Palestinian and Israeli children underline the urgent need for stronger protection for children in the region, end quote. From there, it wasn't long before UN officials were laying the blame on Israel. Nearly a decade later, the UN is following the same dance steps. The difference is that Hamas crimes have grown exponentially. The October 7th slaughter of more than 1,200 Israelis was the single largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust and the second largest terrorist attack since 9-11. Since that horrific day, the UN has called numerous emergency sessions, held hours of debate, drafted hundreds of pages of draft resolutions, all of which amount to very little. It has not passed a single resolution to condemn Hamas's savagery, even though terrorists wore GoPros to document themselves slaughtering, raping, and torturing civilians. Similarly, the UN has not called for the release of more than 200 hostages, including babies, children, and the elderly. Instead, the UN has set its focus on conditions in Gaza. Blaming Israel even as Hamas hides behind the civilian population and continues to fire rockets at Israel's civilian centers. UN officials are pressing for a ceasefire, knowing full well it would give Hamas the chance to regroup, rearm, and renew its attacks. Back in 2014, there were a series of short-lived 
ceasefires, which Hamas breached. The United Nations was founded in the wake of World War II to maintain peace and security and prevent atrocities such as the Holocaust. It is failing to live up to that mission. UN provides cover for terrorists. Eight decades later, the UN is a clubhouse for dictators and a den of moral equivocation. It is a home for corrupt tyrants to stand in judgment of free democracies, where warmongers, including Israel, or rather including Russia, wield a veto, and notorious human rights abusers such as Iran get tapped to lead human rights forums. By cultivating the appearance of a virtuous global body, the UN dangerously telegraphs to terror groups and their state sponsors that there will never truly be a price to pay for committing atrocities. Worse, the UN gives them cover. After October 7, the international outcry shifted from horror for Israel to horror at Israel in less than a week. While it is reasonable to expect Israel to abide by the laws of war, it is entirely unreasonable to expect nothing from Hamas. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres told the Security Council that the deadly Hamas attack on southern Israel, quote, did not happen in a vacuum, end quote. These six words were all the world needed to hear to decide that Hamas, genocidal in its intent and brutal in its action, was justified on, on October 7. In one way, Guterres is right. The attacks didn't happen in a vacuum. Since Hamas took over the Gaza Strip in 2007, the UN has watched the terrorist group steal billions of dollars in international aid, build command centers inside hospitals and store rockets in schools operated by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. On the UN watch, Gaza has become what the Israeli ambassador to the United States calls, quote, the biggest terror complex in the world, end quote. And Hamas has learned repeatedly that they can get away with murder. Dale? Thanks, Doug. Our next opinion um, slash satire is from Rex Hupke, a, a writer for the USA Today. And the title of his piece is Moms for Liberty, Keep Faith in Imperious Purpose. Elections last week showed voters are rejecting the broader right-wing, quote, parental rights movement, and in particular, the national group Moms for Liberty, which has protested everything from critical race theory, which proponents see as a framework to examine how the taint of racism still affects black Americans and other people of color, to books that give it even vague mention to sexuality or gender identity. How rude! Just because the Southern Poverty Law Center, a hate group watchdog, identifies Moms for Liberty as an anti-government extremist group, doesn't mean voters should repudiate the organization for disrupting school board meetings and making vulnerable children feel unsafe. Fortunately, Moms for Liberty is taking things in stride, as evidenced by this exclusive and totally not made up internal memo I received. Here's the not made up memo. Hey fellow moms who hate books, I know some of you are feeling a little pink. We don't say blue, that's a boy color. 
because things didn't exactly go our way on election night. But we here on the executive board want to calm everyone's nerves and let you know that Moms for Liberty remains more committed than ever to making sure the voices of moms who want everyone to live by their rules and their rules alone are heard. Thanks to filthy liberal book huggers and people brainwashed into believing that, quote, diversity is a good thing, yuck, we suffered some losses in school board elections across the country. We blame those losses largely on elections, which we stand against because believing instead that school board members should be chosen by us as we are the morally righteous chosen ones. What's democracy? That sounds like a book word. It's true that in Iowa, where we endorsed 13 school board candidates, 12 of them lost. But we attribute that entirely to Marxism juice that left-wing elites injected into this year's Iowa corn crops. In central Ohio, two of the 10 candidates whom we either supported or who signed pledges supporting us won. That's a very high percentage rate of victory, as long as you believe math is a far-left construct that should be outlawed, which we do. Go moms! Yes, demon, or excuse me, yes, demon rats took control of the Central Bucks School District in Pennsylvania via the decidedly satanic tactic of, quote, getting more votes than the candidates we recommended. And in Virginia's Loudoun County, three of our four candidates lost, as we, or as we like to call it, prevailed in reverse. These results prompted people like Democratic consultant Jared Leopold to tell the Washington Post, a publication we do not read because it contains facts, in quotes, it turns out that talking endlessly about critical race theory is not a successful way to win critical races. Ha ha ha. Isn't that just hilarious? Listen up, fellow joyful warriors. Are we going to let a sweeping electoral rejection of our passionate desire to protect children from history, reality, and their own identities force us to stop doing things like calling for book bans, dehumanizing LGBTQ plus children, and quoting Adolf Hitler to make a point? Heck no. Pardon the salty language. Besides, it wasn't all bad news last week. Read this from an Associated Press report, in quotes. A Republican candidate who refused to denounce a local chapter of Moms for Liberty that used a quote by Adolf Hitler in a newsletter has won her election as mayor of Carmel, Indiana, a wealthy suburb of Indianapolis, end quote. That's what we here at Moms for Liberty call progress. Moving forward, we encourage all members to take the following steps and help grow our important parental rights organization that definitely doesn't exist just to foment outrage and raise money. Number one. Continue using your apparently boundless free time to read every book in your local school library, keeping a watchful eye for our key red flags, scenes involving any form of sex, sexuality, shirtlessness, kindness, or basic human connection, 
Anything that suggests white people have ever done anything wrong at any point in history, ever, and anthropomorphized animals showing even the slightest level of same-sex attraction, particularly penguins. Number two, remember our new DNA policy when it comes to using quotes from well-known fascists and mass murderers. Do not attribute. That's what got us in trouble the last time. Number three, once a week, try to deny at least one LGBTQ plus child's right to exist while simultaneously touting your deeply held moral beliefs and training your brain to reject the communist concept of hypocrisy. And finally, number four, send us as much money as you can so we can continue to protect all children from facts in quotes, the devil's evidence, and the ills of learning to be equitable and inclusive, to dark gateways to the soulless liberal practice of compassion. Onward, Moms for Liberty. Let's get out there and keep sharing our welcoming message that anyone who doesn't agree to live by our moral code is either demonic or an un-American lout. Everything's going great. And again, that piece was from Rex Hupke of the USA Today. Des Moines uh, Register Sports Section time. Going to read this one by uh, Ched Listacow. A confidence-building day for Iowa quarterback Deacon Hill is what it's titled. Iowa's 22-0 win against Rutgers should be enough for the Hawkeyes to crack into the top 20 of Tuesday night's college football playoff rankings. A week ago... Some folks chuckled that Iowa, with a hard-to-watch offense, was number 22 in the CFP now, after a dominating win Saturday against a good Scarlet Knights team. This looks like an Iowa team that might have a chance to be competitive against the Big Ten East champion should the Hawkeyes win once more to reach the conference title game on December 2. Quote, when guys get to taste some success, I think that grows confidence, head coach Kirk Ferentz said afterward. We need to grow confidence. We're in bad need of that. Hopefully, we can build on this and see how these next two weeks go, end quote. Confidence was apparent on the Rutgers rewatch, or rewatch, starting with the embattled quarterback. What was behind Deacon Hill's best day at quarterback? Well, early in the broadcast, after the sophomore threw incomplete on his first two attempts, Big Ten Network's Jack, Jake Butt said, uh, laid out the day's challenge ahead. This is going to be on the way Rutgers plays. This is going to be the way Rutgers plays. This is just one-on-one -on -one coverage. But observed, there are three guys in coverage. The other eight are inside the box and run support. How does offensive coordinator Brian Ferentz adjust to that? At some point, you do have to test the number game and tack the weaknesses of the Rutgers defense, he said. Well, Minnesota did a good job daring Hill to throw in what became a 12-10 Hawkeye loss on October 21, and Rutgers tried to replicate that. But Hill had an answer, as he showed tremendous improvement, including in footwork and poise. He was 11 for 28 for 116 yards against the Gophers with three turnovers. He finished 20 for 31 versus Rutgers for 233 yards with one turnover. Why the difference? One of the moments... That seemed important for Hill occurred early in the game on an incompletion. 
On third and six from Iowa's 24, Brian Ferentz called an empty backfield throw, and Hill got excellent pass protection, a theme for the day as he wasn't sacked, and worked through his progressions to find Jaswin Patterson over the middle for his first down yardage. Unfortunately, Patterson let the accurate throw go through his hands. But that seemed to give Hill some confidence, because on Iowa's next possession, on a third and five from Iowa's 14 in a five-wide set, he found LaShawn Williams near the left sideline for a crisp completion of 17 yards. That was the first of eight consecutive completions for Hill, who was mostly accurate after a one-for-five start. And he finished the day by completing nine of his final 11 passes, a hot streak that began with his 54-yard completion to freshman Zach Ortworth for 112 yards. Brian Ferentz made the reads pretty easy for Hill, who almost always threw to his first target. That included on some wide receiver screens and on a nice 17-yarder to Nico Ragini on a raw rollout that set up Iowa's first touchdown. Iowa's offensive line will have a tougher time with Illinois attacking defense, led by sensational tackle Jersey Jerseyan Johnny Newton on Saturday at 2.30 p.m. Fox Sports 1 carries that. But this was a team-wide effort in the passing game and a confidence-building step forward for Hill. Phil Parker's blitz don't break strategy. With 38 seconds left in the first quarter, Rutgers' Greg Schiano called timeout with his team facing third and seven from Iowa's 43 in a scoreless game. To that point, the Scarlet Knights had gained 78 yards on 11 plays and moved into Iowa territory on both possessions. But from that point forward, Rutgers gained 49 yards on 30 plays. What changed? Iowa defensive coordinator Phil Parker took a more aggressive approach than usual, including with that third and seven play. Ben don't break works against most teams, but Rutgers run-heavy formula with a running quarterback allowed Iowa to leave its defensive backs with less help in coverage. On this third and seven play, Iowa smelled run and had eight Hawkeyes crashing the line of scrimmage. Linebackers Jay Higgins and Nick Jackson blitzed into open gaps and safely, and safety Xavier Wonkpa was on this his way to help. Jackson made a terrific play, cutting under the block of the right guard to get into the backfield, and he and Logan Lee wrapped up Kyle Monaghan Monagai for a one-yard loss instead of a long field for goal or fourth-down situation. Rutgers had a fourth and eight and punted, allowing Iowa to begin the process of flipping the field. Blitzes from Parker, who normally likes to rush for and rely on pass coverage, were prevalent, especially after Iowa earned a 6-0 and zero lead in the third quarter. A sack by Jackson was followed by back-to-back blitzes, one from Sebastian Castro, the next from Jackson Higgins, to hurry Gavin Wimsat in completions. A Rutgers' next drive, the threat of a Jackson blitz, plus the crowd seemed to jam the signals for Rutgers center Gus Zinskas, who gunned a bad snap past Wimsat for a 13-yard loss on 3rd and 7. Iowa blitzed unofficially on 8 of Wimsat's 19 dropbacks, 42%. Castro came on a delayed blitz on the throw that was intercepted by Quinn Schulte, and the pressure worked. Wimsat was more rattled as the day went on, firing incomplete on his final eight attempts. <clears throat> going to go on a little longer here. I'm not going to be able to finish this. It's a long one. 
Third down conversions make a word of difference, don't they? Iowa entered Saturday with a 131st ranked third down conversion rate at 27% out of 133 FBS teams. Against Rutgers, Iowa went 9 for 18 on third down and another 2 for 2 on fourth downs. That helped the Hawkeyes punt a season low three times on 11 possessions. On the flip side, Rutgers went 2 for 11 on third down and punted nine times. Well, why the sudden success? Getting into third and short plays was the biggest factor, which meant first down successes, either on the ground or with short passes, usually to tight end Addison Norsenga, who had eight receptions for 47 yards. Iowa's average distance to go on third downs was 5.3 yards, and it went six for nine on third downs with four or fewer yards to go. Those six conversions included two jet sweep runs to Caleb Brown for seven yards on third and two and 13 yards on third and three. Those plays right there will help loosen up third and short defenses going forward. He'll move the chains three times on quarterback sneaks, including once on fourth down. Iowa was five for eight, passing for 46 yards on third down, and those were some of the stats. Going to jump here to Cooper to Gene. He had no tackles and no offensive snaps to his credit in the box score, but it was worth a ton of yards on special teams by aggressively running to short and angled punts to make fair catches. And we end up here with Nico, Nico Regani and Caleb Brown, who combined 10 touches for 91 yards and a touchdown. Deserve a ton of credit for stabilizing Iowa's wide receiver position with starter Deontay Vines out. Regani played a season-high 66 snaps after getting 55 a week earlier versus Northwestern. Brown earned 60 snaps. He had 53 total in Iowa's first eight games. Before we move on to Dear Abby, I'm going to point out a couple of uh, games on TV that you might be interested in tonight. At 5 p.m. on FS1 in college basketball, men's college basketball, Wisconsin is at Providence. That's on FS1. And at 8.30 p.m. PM on ESPN, you can see Kentucky versus Kansas. Kansas, Chicago, I guess that is. Um, and finally, at 9 p.m. tonight, men's basketball on FS1, Iowa is at Creighton, if you want to catch that game on TV. Now it's time for Dear Abby. The headline is, Mom's abrupt shift leaves kids scratching their heads. Dear Abby, one night about six months ago, my mom walked out on my dad. A week later, she admitted she had been having an affair for a whole year. My parents' divorce was final three months after she left. Mom has now announced to me and my siblings that she's engaged and plans to marry her fiancé just six months after the divorce. We think it's a terrible idea. We really dislike her fiancé and think he's a bad guy based on our interactions with him. Mom claims to be happy, but we don't believe her. Should we just let her live her life? How do we accept this new reality? Signed, Throne in Washington. Dear Throne, if you and your siblings plan to maintain a relationship with your mother, handle this like the hot potato it is. Recognize that things were not as rosy as you assumed in your parents' marriage. Take things one step at a time and make an effort to look out for your father. Then cross your fingers and hope that as painful as this disruption is, everything works out for the best. A second letter says, Dear Abby, I have been married 33 years. 
We have no savings. We live paycheck to paycheck. My husband keeps borrowing more and more, and our credit cards are out of hand. He still works. I am retired. He has a 28-foot enclosed trailer stuffed with mechanical items, hobbies, collectibles, and who knows what else, as well as a double garage filled with so much you can't walk in there. There is $10,000 to $15,000 worth of stuff. He refuses to sell anything, even though he hasn't even been, been, he hasn't even been to the trailer in more than a year. We have terrible fights over this. I'm losing sleep over our future. Any ideas? Signed, Going Downhill in California. Dear Going Downhill, from what you have described, your husband is a hoarder. Some people do this because of anxiety or depression. Your husband needs to get to the root of why he spends compulsively on things he isn't using. His doctor could refer him for counseling and possibly medication that would help if he is willing. However, if he's unwilling, you may need to separate your finances from his before he encumbers you both further. And the final letter says, Dear Abby, how do you tell your adult children it's time for them to start planning family events? Neither of my 30-something kids has planned a thing. I thought I raised them better than this. But unless I plan birthdays, holidays, etc., nothing happens. I'm tired of being the social glue. How do I get them to step up? Signed, Passing the Torch. Dear Passing, You can encourage your children to step forward and assume some responsibility for family events by telling them in plain English. As the next holiday draws near, approach them individually and as a group and inform them if they want family celebrations they should start planning some of them because, after all these years, you need a break. And that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. Um, yeah, I'm Dale Finnegan, and my partner at the microphone has been Doug Kretzinger. Earlier today, you heard Deanna Snyder and Pat Steele. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.